you are always thinking in the back of your mind, I hope everything's okay, you know, because it feels good. You know, you, you, you've got the culture, you've got the, the momentum, you've got things going. It's that blind spot. You know, I look back on that now and that, you know, you, that, that thing that just hits you upside the head and you're like, damn, I should have been paying attention to that. I poured myself another drink and I started thinking, you know, how in the world am I going to live as an ex-convict? You know, do I want to live as an ex-convict? Can I live as an ex-convict? And my girls, I mean, they don't need the stain of a dad, you know, that they're going to have to deal with it's an ex-con. And so I just, and I had another drink. I, you know, I, I, this is, you know, I got out the pen of paper and I started th thinking all the friends that had been friends and, and supportive, put the pen down, poured another drink, grabbed the keys to the car and went down to the garage. And I didn't know if I was going to go hit a tree or if I was just going to let the car run. And it was like, Matt, something hit me. What in the hell are you doing, Brent? You're the glass half full guy. You're the optimistic guy. You aren't this guy. And what what a fool. And at, at that moment, I thought, you know, whatever happens, I said, I, you know, I'm going to be a survivor through this. I'm not going to be a victim. I'm not going to be pointing fingers and, and doing and, and feeling sorry for myself. I'm at least going to try to make my family proud of how I handle the situation. Hey, this is Matt Cox, and uh, I appreciate you guys checking in on me. And I'm going to be doing a podcast with Brent Cassidy. And uh, Brent's got a fascinating story, and um, I, I've heard some of it. I know a little bit of the story, but it's, it's a lot like – it's not the typical story because – well, one, it's extremely unique, but not just that. It, it, it's not like a, the, a bank robber or something where it was, you know, he robbed five banks and the story's over. He's got a long uh, story. There's a lot of different things going on, a lot of moving parts, so it should be super interesting. A uh, really interesting guy. Also, he uh, he's running a he runs a podcast. I'm pretty sure um, you have a book. Let me switch here to this. I'm not great at this yet. Um, <laughs> you have a book uh, that came out, right? I do. Yeah. Okay. You've got a book. You've got a podcast. And um, so, yeah, uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, get into uh, Brent's story. And so check this out. So, Brent, we talked a, a little bit the other day and you started telling me your your story. And I remember usually I talk to somebody and they'll tell me, you know, they'll talk for five minutes or something. But I could tell right away, like the more we talked, the more I was like, oh, wow, this is going to be this is way, way more <laughs> than, than than typical, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So do you want to start off by just kind of telling me, like, like, where'd you, you know, how, where were you born? Like how? Yeah. Yeah. So I. You know, man, I thought growing up as a kid, I, I grew up in southwest Missouri, a small town. Um, it's about two, two and a half hours, three hours from St. Louis, down in uh, kind of a hillbilly country. But um, it was good. It was kind of like you know, one of those kids when you're growing up, you know, you ride your bike around the neighborhood. Everybody, you know, gets picked for teams. You play touch tackle football and basketball and baseball. And you go home at night when the lights go down and you get you know, your dinner and your fed. My dad and mom were actually from a really small town uh, that was about 30 minutes down the street from Springfield. It was Buffalo, Missouri. And so growing up as a kid, I thought I we were living a pretty normal life. Um, I had a bigger than life dad in my life. Um, 
he was one of those guys, you know, in his high school, he won the state championship. Uh, he's valedictorian. He went on to play, be a D1 athlete, um, basketball and track in college. And then he went to law school, graduated number one in his class. He zoomed out of there, won some big court cases. And then he got into business and became kind of a big deal. But as a kid, all I was thinking is, wow, I want to be just like him. He's so cool. And, you know, I was thinking about, you know, seventh, eighth grade, I was six foot one. I was like a seven footer, you know, it's being seventh grade, eighth grade, being six foot one is huge because the kids don't, you know, the boys don't grow. The girls, you know, get taller, but I couldn't wait to get to high school. You know, I was like, I finally get to be able to, you know, show it all up. Well, dad calls us into the room one night and says to my brother and I, he says, uh, hey, Guys, he said, I've gotten into a heap of trouble with a bank I own, and um, I think I'm just going to plead guilty and do a plea bargain, and we're going to start from scratch. And, and I, I've, he's, he just lays this on us. I'm like, you didn't what see in the at all? You didn't know there was any? No, no, no. And, and I think at that time when you're a kid, you've got your own world. Uh, there might have been some stuff on the news or whatever, but he was kind of always a little bit on the news because he was he was doing uh, he was an attorney. He was doing cases. He was in business. And so th that I didn't even really pay attention to that at that age. So there might have been a little bit of that, but totally came out of the blue. So his mouth is moving. and I'm thinking, how in the world is this going on? The guy that I idolize is bigger than life is telling me that he's been tied up and caught up in a bank thing. And then he drops the bomb and says, we're going to start over and move to St. Louis, Missouri. And I said, oh, my God, it's like one of the worst meetings of a family gathering I've ever had. So we move up to St. Louis and worst time to move as a kid. Summertime, nobody's around, you know, the, you don't go to school. So I was, you know, my my release and, and escape was always playing basketball. So I went to this basketball camp my dad got me into and ended up going um, that can, summer. Yeah. Can I ask you one one question real quick? I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt, but so your father, you know, you skated over like he was got in trouble for some bank stuff. Like yeah. what, what was and did he go to jail? Did he get? Yes, he did. And that, oh. and that, that was one of those things where, um, you know, as a kid, you know, he ended up getting six months in prison. Uh, he got he got charged with bank fraud and insurance or not insurance fraud, but tax fraud, uh, given a loan to a, a guy that was on the uh, board of the bank. I'm not even sure if that's an illegal transaction anymore, but back then it was. And then there was a, an insurance thing with a mobile home park he owned. And he appreciated it. Said he appreciates, that's all confusing stuff, but it, that's what happened. All right. Um, I understand what happened. <laughs> exactly. So so the thing the thing of it with us as a family was, is that I just remember when it finally came down to it, we moved in, you know, up to St. Louis and, and we started going to Marion, Illinois, where he was in prison was, man, I can't believe we're this family. You know, we were wealthy, you know, we kind of had everything going. And, and all of a sudden we are that family that goes and visits our, my dad in prison every weekend. I remember, you know, pulling up to that prison. First thing is, as a kid, you're like, 
I wonder if he looks okay. You know, like he's going to be in prison clothes and all these things that you think that you you know you have in movies and whatever. And he comes out and he's tan. He looks good. I'm thinking, okay, that's great. So, I when I leave though, I'm thinking to myself at 15 years old, Matt, this will never happen to me. This will right. never happen to me. I'll never find myself here. And you know, there's some weirdness too when there's a prison. Statistically, if your father, if your parents, I know, I fall prison, into. You have like five times. You're five times. Five, five times. Likely. Yeah. That's a yeah. scary, scary number, isn't it? But I do. You know, the, the other thing that was kind of weird was you move into a place because we moved into a new neighborhood. My dad's in prison, and there's you know the oddness of it is we we didn't really know how to handle where's your dad or where's your husband, and. So we kind of said he's out of town working. And that was kind of true because he did have a prison job. He was out of town. So we got around that. But I'm sure everybody in the neighborhood thought, what in the world is going on with this family? And it was kind of a weird thing to start a new high school and, and your dad's in prison and you're not telling anybody that your dad's in prison. And, and then he came back and then it was all normal. So dad got out of prison. He lost everything except for one unsexy business and it was pre-arranged it was called national pre-arranged services and it pre-arranged your funeral service so you would actually matt take uh go take and make arrangements and you'd freeze the cost of that funeral and you could even fill out a little book that would have your pallbearers and your music and everything and so everything was taken care of so your family didn't have to worry about it the burden was taken off of them not a jump off your page. Uh, wow, that's that's really a cool company, but it really had a purpose and, and it really took off because it was kind of a newer idea going into the early 80s. And I got into um, I got into the company about 10 years after it started, got out of college. I, I had done some sales and stuff uh, when I and I was going to go to law school. And that was the other thing. I was a political science major and, and, and did uh, theater was a minor and I was going to be a trial attorney. And I don't know if I've always blamed on being left-handed, but I was so bad at taking standardized tests. I, I, you, you give me like, Matt, you give me like a, a thing to be able to, to have uh, an essay. I, I could do great. I, I mean, it wasn't like I graduated with a 3.4 in college. So it wasn't, I wasn't on the dunce scale, but if you put a standardized test in front of me, I was on the dunce scale. I mean, I was the dumb, 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 dumb scale. So I couldn't get it on that LSAT, what I needed to get. And so I did a pivot and uh, I thought, you know, I've, I think I'm pretty good at sales. Um, why don't I, why don't I go talk to my dad about this? And so we had a sit down discussion. I said, you know, dad, I think uh, I'd like to go into this, but I don't want, I don't want to be in your shadow on this deal. I mean, you're the guy here in St. Louis. And I said, where can I go to just pass fail? Just see if I'm going to get at this. He said, well, you see, you go down to Texas. We just opened up a place down in Texas and uh, there's a funeral home there in Austin. I was like, oh, sign me up. You know, I was 22, 23 years old. Austin, Texas, you know, try something out. And so I went down there, Matt, and it worked really great. Um, found out I was really good at it. Uh, won all the national contest stuff. We were, in, we were in three states at the time. So I was the new kid. And I had my own thing down in Texas. And so I was at this time, 24, 25 years old. Well, dad didn't have a whole lot of interest in the sales side. He wanted, we, we'd gotten into owning an insurance company that funded these 
pre-arrangement contracts. So if you had a pre-arrangement contract, we would buy for like $5,000, we would buy a $5,000 life insurance policy. And so those two, those two companies coexisted. I had no interest in that insurance company. My dad loved that world of investments and trading and all that. And I hated math. Um, and that was one of the great things about political science. You didn't have any math. You didn't have to take math. Right. So he started. So when you say he 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 had an insurance company, he yeah. started an insurance company. He was funding the insurance company himself, or was he like an agency of? A okay. So what it when it, when you start when you first start an insurance company, you usually have a bigger insurance company, and you grow yourself into the reserves and things that you need in the beginning. So those first few years, I forget what company it was, but as you grow in and you have your capital and surplus and your reserves and everything, and then you are able to stand out on your own. By the time I had gotten into the business, it had been 10 years, we had a standalone insurance company. So he's now taking he's now taking the the premiums that are being paid and he's investing those premiums. Yeah. And the interesting thing about that too, Matt, is, is that in that world, everybody makes a claim. Oh, so yeah, yeah. everybody dies. So you've got to be real careful with how that all works. I mean, and, and there's, it's a highly regulated business. I mean, right. you don't, you don't just play around with, with insurance because in every single state you have to get approved. Your, your contracts are approved. Everything goes through and not every state is the same, but every state usually audits you on a, on an annual basis and you are pretty tied into what what you can and can't do so that's and that's one of the things you know my biggest thing out of my life you know looking back on it now after i you know went to prison and all the things that happened in my world my biggest mistake was is that i had no interest in that i i ended up creating a very big company of we went from three states to 22 or 25 states and I just looked at it like I'm just putting the money over there. They can take care of that as long as and, and the thing of it was there was never any issue with the fact that we paid for funerals and the funeral directors got paid their growth and they got paid their funeral contracts and, and everybody got their money. That wasn't the you know, we went through 30 years of that being that our thing was much more complicated. And and it that it, it was drawn out for a lot longer time. But in the, backing up though, Matt, um, we got into this and, and it really took off. Um, the company grew. My brother came into the company um, when he got out of college, and he was more tech. He was more technology savvy. And, but we had a family idea, and I think I talked to you about this, Matt, where. We talked about, you know, like when Queen Elizabeth died just a few weeks ago, you know, you expect the highlight of her life. Everything that ever happened, you, you expect it now and you want it now and they they already have it's done. You don't do that with your grandparents, your mom, your dad, your uncle and your aunts. And so we decided we wanted to be the filmmakers of everybody else. And that got us into two different things. We, we got into a production company. And we started owning cemeteries because we figured cemeteries are a place that people go to remember. So we would actually go to people who own cemetery property what and offer this. This what would have been in the uh, early 90s. Okay. 
Yeah. And it would have been before YouTube and, and yeah, all yeah, yeah. I was trying around. to think about like, I was trying to think about you, you know, putting together because when my mother died last year and, you know, they put together, we gave them a bunch of photographs and they basically popped it into yeah. a, a, a format. Mm -hmm. You know, you pick what you wanted, but it's basically the same thing. I can go on like I'm a anybody uh, can do it now. Yeah. Ivata, is it Ivata? Yeah. What's the name of that? Ivato? Invato, I, yeah. I'm you know I'm signed up for Invato, and you just plug in the throw in twenty pictures and pick some music, and it comes up with it for you. But you were, yeah. you were way before doing. Invato. Well, yeah, and and um, you know we basically started that, and we got into the funeral side of it too so for visitations, and you know we would take a, a little clips out of the life story part if they had, if they had that and put it into the music and the pictures and whatever. So. We were really at the forefront of that. I mean, there were so many, strangely enough, there were so many competitors of ours that just said that we were like sacrilegious, putting a TV in a in a room and you know, people are but you know, the 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 really great thing about it was it was really more of a comfort because it was more of what people were used to watching TV bringing back memories, giving things for people to talk about. Oh, I remember when your dad used to coach our little, little league team or that, you know, you, you share these memories together instead of that uncomfortable. A lot of this too was because we were from the funeral business. So I was very uncomfortable going to funerals. You know, how can I make funerals more comfortable so yeah. that I feel okay being there? Uh, so the, you bought the cemetery. Sorry. You would, you, I got you off track. You had yeah. bought, you were investing in cemeteries. Yeah. And what was the process? So, yeah. So we would actually go to people who own cemetery property and we would offer them base, well, more or less to buy another product. And that was to start their life story. And it was sold in chapters. You know, you tell us your earliest memory, your high school memories, your school, college, your when you started your family and kids and whatever. And it just kind of built and we walked people through their scrapbook. So they, they kind of warmed up through it. And as this got and came through, we did about 18 to 20,000 of these life stories. So we did a lot of life stories. But in the meantime, uh, we were getting a lot of press because nobody in this arena, I mean, nobody was doing anything different than, you know, basically going from a horse and buggy to a, a car or a, a hearse. You know, we were doing something where we were saying, you know, we were wanting to revolutionize the way people remember a life. You know, there's an African proverb where they talk about um, when someone dies, a library burns. So we were thinking, wouldn't it be cool if we could just become a library of lives for the community? So when you didn't know somebody, your grandmother or whatever, you could go to our console at our cemetery, touch up and pull up your grandmother or great grandmother you didn't know. And all of a sudden there you are. So we were really, you know, we were excited about this. This is something that was we, you know, we got covered by Time Magazine, and Fortune Forbes, uh, Entertainment Tonight picked us up when we bought Hollywood Cemetery out in Los Angeles. We were on there a couple of times, so we really got a lot of press. And then HBO came calling and and created um, a documentary that was called The Young and the Dead, and that kind of encapsulated everything that we were doing, except for. The unsexy part, which was the part I was told you about in the beginning, which we were doing pre-arranged funerals. And but that was the big part of our business, actually. Uh, so we got this we got all this going and everything was going great. I, you know, I, I, I met my wife 
when she was 13 years old and I was 15 and we've kind of gone through every life stage and we've had three kids now and, you know, things have blown up. Life's great. Um, got a nice house in Nantucket for the kids and we live in St. Louis and it's all great. And then one day, and it kind of happens, you know, these blindside things, Matt, when, especially if you're in business and you've got a big company, our company wasn't that big. I mean, it was big enough. You know, we had about 400 some odd people that worked for us. But you feel like 400 people in 25 states. That sounds like a big company. It was big. It was big, but not there's gigantic. There's thousands. You know, there's people that have thousands of people. We we were big enough. We were mid-level. But you are always thinking in the back of your mind. I hope everything's okay. you know, because it feels good. You know, you, you, you've got the culture, you've got the, the momentum, you've got things going. It's that blind spot. You know, I look back on that now and that, you know, you, that that thing that just hits you upside the head and you're like, damn, I should have been paying attention to that. I was filling up my gas tank one day and I get a phone call from um, the president of our insurance company. We didn't talk much, but he said, Brian, I just got a really weird phone call with the lady from the insurance department in Ohio. And she's in the investigative division and says that she's got information that's going to bring our company down. And it was like, I, I was literally filling up my gas tank and it was like just this feeling of dread came over. Cause I, I had felt this before with my dad when I was 15, but it was much different this time because we're all in this together and I'm in this with him. And in the moment of this happening, the part that isn't a surprise is, is that we, we had a gigantic reinsurance company. And they're the biggest in the world out of uh, Germany. And for those, I don't want to get too far in the weeds on reinsurance. It's just a smaller company. Uh, you got an A-plus rated uh, insurance company and you you basically push your liability off and they pay you a commission for your money, basically. And and you can use that as a benefit to selling as you go out and sell that you've got this gigantic umbrella that's your big protection. So anyway, we had a we had the largest reinsurance company in the world that we were doing business with, but they had kind of gotten backwards in the market when 9-11 happened and we had cut a fat deal with them. And they um, wanted to come back and renegotiate. Now, on my world, I didn't even know about this because I, I was the stupid one that didn't pay attention to what we were doing in the insurance side. My dad, way too smart for his own good, I think. You know, when I talked about him earlier, I also think dad kind of kept a chip on his shoulder. He's from a small town. He always wanted to show everybody that he was a smart guy. So the easy thing to do, for somebody like me, who's not the smartest guy in the room, is okay. You want to renegotiate? What do we need to do? Because you know you got a sweet deal. Dad wasn't in the contract. No, hell no. So we go into arbitration, and um, that probably wasn't smart because the arbitration for uh, the company that we were up against was the size of a country so they could outspend us at any point uh, through discovery and all that. So we, we started spiraling into before any of this happened on the, on the regulatory side, spending seven, eight, $9 million on legal fees. 
hitting our capital and surplus. So that was unfortunate before we ever got into this. And as it went, Matt, and it's kind of hard to explain out there to the world of, of people listening to this, but those things can leak out. You know, those arbitrations are supposed to be private, sealed um, processes, but they're not. And they that started leaking out into all the states that we were in. Probably came from the company that we were up against because it became an advantage for them to have that happen to us. And later we found in discovery, that's exactly what happened. But as it was happening, uh, it was a nightmare. All of a sudden, you have a regulatory world and all the states we were in asking questions, you know, wanting every document you have of everything that you're doing. And, and there quite honestly wasn't enough hours in the day. So what happens with me is, is, is uh, my dad and our attorney, who's been with us forever, my trustee of this trust. That's how, by the way, that was how we kept that trust. National Prairie Services, is it was in a trust. That's why dad didn't lose that. It was in my name, my mom's name, and Tyler's name, which was my brother. So that's how that company existed, and that's how it went on. He once conned Bank of America out of $250,000 using nothing but a fake ID and his charm. He is the most interesting man in the world. I don't typically commit crime, but when I do, it's bank fraud. Stay greedy, my friends. Support the channel. Join Matthew Cox's Patreon. So, Dad comes to me and he says, uh, Brent, he says, we, we've got to get out there and talk to these regulators. Um, tell them what we're doing, our story, and, and back up. Because we've got a forest fire. I said, great. I said, tell, tell me what all we're doing. Because I'm the ignorant son who completely ignored the wrong things in our business. Now, this is the one I need to go talk about. But I wanted to do it, Matt. I wanted to put on the cape. I wanted to show my dad that I was, you know, going to save the day. And I really thought I could. Um, so, and dad said, I can't go out and talk because I'm an ex-felon. I, yeah. I, you know, I can't be at the regulatory table and say, hey, here, what do you think? So I ended up, I mean, I was flying all over the place. Matt. I mean, it was, uh, I don't even know how to explain it. It, it was, it was dizzy time because you never thought that you could get enough time to get to the next place, to get to the next meeting, to get to the next answer. And they were all mad. You're not getting me this. You're not getting me that. And, and it was just, it was a free for all. And you could feel it too. You could feel like, even though we were still doing business on, on the real world, you, it was like you were sucked in a vacuum of a dark place that nobody saw except you and some few other people where you were trying to save everybody's out here. And you go back, you were living two different lives. You know, I was, I was flying all around and then I was playing golf, uh, you know, at the two man deal at the country club and, or we were going out to dinner with our friends. And so I felt like I was Brent in this regulatory nightmare and Brent going to the kids functions at the school, trying to make things seem normal. Well, eventually things didn't, come out normal. I didn't save the day. I thought a couple of times that we were there and um, our thing went from an investigation of, of the regulatory world to started criminal. And we went through six years 
and I was I was indicted in 2010, and uh, so I was indicted for three years before we ever got to the part where they were we were going to go to trial or there was going to be a plea bargain, and that was a weird time. What was the crux of their issue? Well, it's, it was kind of complicated because it wasn't that we weren't paying our our stuff. You know, right. normally you would think, okay, well, you guys are really bad because you're not paying the, for the funerals. You're not you're not uh, paying the funeral directors what they're supposed to be paying. It wasn't that we had a case that happened back in '94 with the state of Missouri, and it came down to, and you might understand this, Matt, because you kind of have that background. Um, there was a when you wrote a funeral contract in Missouri, it had to go into a funeral trust, and in that funeral trust. It had you had to put 80 percent of the cash in there and then 20 percent of it could be done for your administrative and sales or whatever. What you did with that 80 percent was up to you. You could invest in commodities, stocks, bonds, whatever. We bought insurance policies. So the question was. What is the value of that insurance policy? Is it the cash amount of what's that been paid on that policy? You might have paid in months premium, you might have paid four months premium, you might have paid it off. Or is it the face amount? Is it $5,000 immediately when it goes in there? Because from our argument, it was that no matter what happens, whether you paid one month, two months, all of it, we were responsible for the payout, all of it. So our argument was it was worth face uh, value and the states said it was worth the cash value of the trust. Makes a big difference when you're valuing the numbers. So eventually um, it comes down to the, we go to a statute interpretation before a judge and judges, well, I kind of see it like a car wreck. You don't look at it as an investment, you look at it to pay off for the wreck. So once that happened, they said, they went back and they said, okay, we're going to do a settlement. And we were able to do business that way up until 2008, until the federal government came in and they had the same argument. So we were fighting over, something that was, is this business sustainable? And will this business be able to pay out by the by the cash that you've created uh, from the policies to continue on for the next 30 years? There were some other issues though, Matt, that were in there that's even more complicated is, is in each state, who was the beneficiary of the insurance contract? Even though we went and got it approved through each state that they assigned all the rights and benefits over to the insurance company or NPS because at the, in the end, we were the responsible party to pay you're for the, the one funeral. Who has to pay the, you're the one who has to right. pay the funeral. So you and don't they, want to get the benefits. They take the money and leave. Right. So they, so they, that ended up to be a huge thing that uh, they, they came back on us and said, well, we couldn't be the beneficiary and this isn't your policy and so on and so forth. But, that was already agreed to. It was already uh, the people assigning it over were were the people who were buying the funeral. They didn't have any problem assigning the rights and benefits as long as it was going to be paid. So there were those were two big issues that became debatable issues. And I, the reason I say this gets really complicated is, is because you can get into a conversation with somebody from a federal government that doesn't know anything about insurance like me, but people who are in our company that did know a lot about insurance. And they even said things like, well, you don't have enough money if everybody dies today. 
to pay everything off. And well, of course we don't. That's not the way. That's not the way insurance company works. Yeah, you have actuaries. State Farm doesn't have enough. No, nobody does. But right. but here's the here's the crazy thing about it is Matt is that somebody who's an assistant attorney can say that, and then you have to defend an outrageous comment. You can't go to the bank and withdraw out all money. You know, you right. can't, but in, in, in insurance, it's directly set up for actuaries to say, okay, what's your age? Have you had any operations? Have you had cancer? Have you had heart attacks? You, you balance all that out and put it into this gigantic equation and then you insure people. So, right. so an actuary, uh, anybody listening, an actuary is the person that calculates all the, the death rate, who's going to die at what ages. And so, uh, how much money you have to have and how much money needs to be paid in to pay out those policies. Like that's the person that crunches all those numbers for insurance yeah. companies or actuaries. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's exactly it, Matt. And, that, and so, and I'm saying all that just because I'm just saying how deep it got. There were 12 million documents in this, this world right. of, of, I mean, we're talking about something that just got so big. And in the end, when you're fighting this and I, you know, six years of fighting the federal government, whenever you, you know this, Matt, you went through the federal deal, seeing United States of America versus your name. There's no, really not much more. Anything I can think of is more intimidating than that. That's like, you know, uh, one of my friends said that, that was uh, on one of my podcasts, uh, Jason said, it's like saying, OK, you get to play the LA your soft your your beer softball league gets to play the LA Dodgers. You can play them, right? Just probably not well. Not even close play to that well. <laughs> you get to get on the same field. But anyway, going past all that, I had three daughters. I have three daughters. Three beautiful daughters. Very accomplished daughters. Uh, They're in their twenty. Well, actually, Courtney's thirty now. Um, but my kids were teenagers then, and one of the thing is we were getting just. I mean, select by the media. It was a big story. And we just, I, and I was very open with the kids, what, what we were doing, how it was going. And, and they had really supportive uh, friends. Uh, they were uh, really great athletes and, and the coaches were very helpful. And so we just kind of cocooned ourselves and we're not, we're not reading anything. We're not looking at all this stuff around. And, and we, we, got through that. But one of the things when it finally got to it, you know, my kids were like, dad, you can't, you can't go to trial. I mean, when I looked at my thing that I had stacked and you know, this, how they do it, Matt, with, with, with fed charges is, you know, we had a charge of wire fraud. So any wire we would have made over the course of 30 years, mail fraud, any mail you would have sent out over the course of 30 years, uh, money laundering, anything that you would have done uh, or bought would be from the fruit of the poison tree. And then I, my my charge that was something that was crazy that I couldn't even have thought of because I didn't know about it. I allowed an ex-felon to work in the business of insurance, which the company started in 79 and dad um, in 1994, Congress passed a law that an ex-felon couldn't work in the business of insurance. And he did. So um, that carried a five-year sentence, but how they stacked those charges, I got to drinking one night, just looking at my papers and I got them out. I was looking at 938 years. I was thinking, man, you know, I could beat maybe, let's say I could beat almost all these charges and maybe two, then you're looking at 40. <laughs> you know, it's like, 
the 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 weirdness of what you do and how you look at things and and what seems totally unreal and outrageous becomes part of your world that you really have to contemplate like my god anyway the and I, when we sat down after 6 years you know I didn't have any money left and and going to trial was seemed like a uh, I don't know what I would have thought the going to trial at that time but I was worn out I was it was just hard to give up after fighting that long. But I told my girl, I, I get it. I'll, they said, you know, dad, take the plea. Uh, the plea, my plea bargain was, was from zero to five years. And so. What they offer you that? His was uh, zero to 10 years. And there was, there was six people indicted. It was my dad. It was me. Uh, it was our attorney. Uh, who happened to be my trustee, um, our investment advisor, and our CFO, and my dad's uh, secretary or executive assistant. Those were the six people that were indicted, and it was they, you know, they, they basically crafted it into it was a conspiracy of all people, and and you know, once you have a conspiracy, you have you know, you can tie everybody into everything, and everybody has right. to defend everybody else's. Yeah, even even though you're just selling policies. You right. don't know what the decisions are being made. You're now responsible yeah. for everything. Your all the conversations that your father and the advisor and the lawyer had for ten right. years that you had nothing to do with, but you're lumped into the conspiracy, and as a result, you're you're now guilty of the things that the decisions that they made because you were in some way a beneficiary of those. Exactly, and it, you know, and I look back at that, Mark, and I think, well, that's my fault because. You know, when you own something, you sh you should be making sure that I, I had a good friend of mine that owned a gigantic. He had the largest insurance comp private insurance company in the United States. He was ten years my senior, and and he didn't like insurance, but he loved uh, real estate and investing in real estate and just making things look great and hotels and all kinds of stuff. He was a really smart guy that way, but he didn't like insurance. And he told me one day, he said, you know, Brent, he said, I know you don't like that. He said, just go out and get the very best there is and put them in. That's what I did. And he said, when my dad got sick, he said, I just, and he told me, and I went out and get, this guy, he says, he's, he's fantastic. I took that advice in and I thought that makes a lot of sense, but it would have, it would have been complicated. Family businesses are weird. You know, that was, that was dad's world. And my world was over here and we didn't walk in each other's territory, really. I didn't walk in Tyler's territory. Um, we kind of worked around and, you know, not that dad and I didn't talk a lot. I mean, I, I talked to him all the time, uh, but we didn't really cross into if I would have gone to my dad and said, hey, listen, dad, what I'm thinking, I just had a conversation with a friend of mine and we're going to hire a, uh, a just a cool, fantastic do it by the book guy for our insurance company. It would have been a kind of a weird conversation. So I, if I had to do it over again, we definitely would have had that conversation. We, we definitely would have sat down. But, you know, at the time, all that was going on, it really didn't seem like that we had very many problems. I mean, that's, that's the, you know, the strange part of it, Matt, is that sometimes these things could come up on you when you think every, anymore, when I think everything is going pretty good. I started thinking, okay, what am I not paying attention to? Because that's the, 
the blind spot thing that kind of scares you is, is that when you think things are going really good, go t- take a step back and make sure that you've got all the boxes checked because that momentum thing can can cross over some things where maybe you should be making uh, a better focus on what you're doing. But going back to what you said, Matt, my world was I should my name was on the line. My dad's name wasn't. I should have definitely. And I to this day, you know, I look back and it, it was so complicated and what they were arguing and all these fancy people that were arguing fancy arguments. Uh, we were sloppy, clearly sloppy on, on the insurance side. We we should have been much better. Uh, but we did have an in-house counsel that I, you know, I believed a lot in. I thought was, you know, handling the audits and doing the things, but we could have done it a lot better. Were we criminal? Uh, I certainly don't think there was any intentions on that, because if there was, I would have taken a whole scoop of cash and put it somewhere and, and lived a different life. But um, yeah, yeah I, I know multiple guys that when you hear their case and what went wrong, it's like, OK, well, that's civil. Like, yeah, that's a stretch yeah. to make that criminal. Yeah. You know, so it's uh, but that's how the government does it. It's it's always like these guys that end up starting a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. Like, oh, he's all con man. He's always been a con man. It's like, well, if he was a con man from the beginning, he wouldn't have opened the company in his name. Exactly. He wouldn't have, he wouldn't have run <laughs> it for 10 years. And then what happens typically is something goes wrong and they try and cover it. Something else goes wrong. They try and cover it. So they start yes. lying about things. And before you know it, they're so far in the hole. They're they're now realizing what I've done now is I've now now I'm running a Ponzi scheme and I can't turn around and go to the auditors and to the regulators and explain it because I'm having I'm going to have to Too far in. for the last six months. I've been lying to the investors and lying to uh, on all the statements and continuing to take in money. And as a, and I've lost money right. and I'm going to go to prison. So what do they do? They just continue to run a Ponzi scheme, hoping they can someday dig themselves out. Yeah. Hit the big one. Yeah. Five years later, it all. And, it's, and, I, and I think the other thing that's kind of complicated about Ponzi schemes is, is first of all, Ponzi schemes aren't supposed to last very long. Um, you know, the, Some but, of them but do. I Some know they do. Happen. I know they do. But it's also it kind of blurs the definition because, I mean, if you take the Social Security setup for oh, the United States, it, it, it's only a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. But it's yeah. but it's legal because it's the government's doing it. It's, they're taking all new funds to yeah. fund um, past and, and current liabilities. But all that being said, you, the the thing of it is, is once you get into the spin cycle, man, it's a tough one. I mean, what is it? Uh, 97% of the people that get indicted plea. And, and, and then if you go on from there, the people who go to trial, it's, it's a tough, and you know, that's the thing that people really don't realize. Not very many people go to trial. No, you know, the, the go- government doesn't want to go to trial and our, you know, the attorneys that we have representing us, they're not used to going to trial because they're used to going into the dark room back there and, and cutting deals and then go to go play golf with the judge or go to the Christmas party with their people. But so you're you're but let's go back to your daughters were telling you take a plea. Yeah. Because yeah. let's face it, you know how many guys, I mean, trust me, they they made the right call because here's here's the reason I say that is do you know how many guys I know that were offered three years, went to trial and ended up with 15 or 20? Right. Because right. They're like, no, I really I didn't do anything. Stop it. Stop. Yeah. 
That does it. Stop thinking it's fair. You've watched too much Law and Order. <laughs> exactly. That's not how it works. And and the thing of it was too is man, I I was guilty um, for sure because I allowed my dad to work in the business of insurance. There was no getting away from that. And those jury instructions would be that I was in a position I should have known that uh, as the president of the company. So that that one had me dead to right. Um, the other things that that happened, I got to tell you, the thing that the thing that's so discouraging is is that. We had a really great company where a lot of people worked for a long time with us. Um, you know, I had created this division where we were kind of on the cutting edge, um, kind of like a pharmaceutical division that had really grown quickly and really, you know, we were the talk of the industry. And so there was a lot of fun things going on. And then we had our stuff that was going on with the, making our uh, life stories. So we, it was an environment where I think people liked working for us. Uh, we liked doing what we were doing. And I think, you know, the struggle is, is to be living the life I live now, looking at all those people's lives were affected. Everybody's. And the, and we got a black eye, you know, they, the, the company that they loved and that they, you know, spent, you know, 15, 20 years with us. Uh, it's, you know, was, by the narrative of the world was run by convicts and people who took other people's money. And, and it just, it just, that's the part that sticks to me that um, you can't quite shake off except you, there's no way that that didn't affect people's lives. There's no way that all those people weren't having to figure out what were they going to do and where were they going to go. Um, and, you know, it's, um, I think the, the other thing you you and you've gone through this too, Matt, is you know finally when you get to that point where you realize okay I'm in, you you went fugitive but you originally you know then you got you got caught, and they brought you in. There's that feeling of okay, now this is my world. Now what am I going to do? Because it's the unknown. You know how how do I make this work? And you know prison was for me. You know we. I went to Leavenworth and Leavenworth was kind of a different, uh, you know, they have the, it used to be USP, then they made it a medium and then they've got the camp. And so, you know, we went, um, I, am, I remember I had my mom and, and my brother and my wife with me and we, uh, uh, you go to, you know, everybody gets processed at the big ugly place. 1879, I think is when Leavenworth was built. It looks like Shawshank Redemption kind it does. of. It does. I've seen that in Atlanta. <laughs> they, just, they look, they so really look menacing. Horrible. Just terrifying looking. They are. And, you know, I, you know, when I had, I had had this pity party of myself, like once I realized I was going to plea, um, I was by myself and we were, we just got off family call and, you know, my mom and my brother said they were going to help with the girls and help with like uh, whatever and if it's for college and, and, and help Julia and whatever. So we got off the phone and, you know, the deal was, okay, we're going to plea and dad and I are going to go to prison. Kind of a heavy conversation of a family call. And so I started, you know, I had already, I had already had a, you know, a, a poured myself a drink and kind of one of those, just total poor me. How did this happen to me? How in the world could this have been, you know, just poor me? I poured myself another drink and I started thinking, you know, how in the world am I going to live as an ex-convict? You know, do I want to live as an ex-convict? 
can I live as an ex-convict? You know, should Julie, who's been a warrior through this and is just, I mean, been, you know, she should have worn a cape as far as how she kept the glue of the family together. She needs a fresh start. She she should go with somebody else and be with somebody else. And my girls, I mean, they don't need the stain of a dad, you know, that they're going to have to deal with. It's an ex-con. And so I just, you know, I had another drink. I, you know, I, I, this is, you know, I got out the pen of paper and I started t- thinking all the friends that had been friends and, and supportive. And here's your fatherly advice to the girls. And here's what you need to think about. And Julie, you need to get a fresh start. Put the pen down, pour another drink, grab the keys to the car and went down to the garage. And I didn't know if I was going to go hit a tree or if I was just going to let the car run. And it was like, Matt, something hit me. I mean, literally, just like a bolt. What in the hell are you doing, Brent? You're the glass half full guy. You're the optimistic guy. You aren't this guy. And what what a fool and quitter your your kids would think you were by doing what? How a horrible way to go out. Julie would think you were the weakest of the weak. And at, at that moment, I thought, you know, whatever happens, and it didn't look good. I mean, whatever I was stepping into was the ugly stuff. I said, you know, I'm going to be a survivor through this. I'm not going to be a victim. I'm not going to be pointing fingers and, and doing and, and feeling sorry for myself. I'm at least going to try to make my family proud of how I handle the situation, even though it scares the shit out of me because I don't know what the next situation is. I just know that it's scarier than what I know. But it really helped me. It kind of steadied me. I kind of hit the whole rock bottom, Matt. The whole, you know, I'm here and I don't want to be and I'm never going back to that. And even standing at the gate of Leavenworth, you know, I've got my my mom, my brother, Julie, I just told him I loved him. And I knew everything I knew and everything I loved was behind me. And everything that was beyond this fence was the big, dark unknown. But I had already dealt with and hit that rock bottom moment to I'm going to survive this. Whatever it is, I'm going to walk into it. And, you know, one of the things I think you learn, I think, Matt, you probably would agree with me nothing is as bad as your mind makes it out to be. Nothing is as bad as your mind makes it out. Not even prison, you know, not even prison. You know, walking through those gates, did it scare the shit out of me? Absolutely. Very menacing looking, ugly place. And, you know, how they process and prisonize you through the, you know, and make you feel, you kind of just feel it like the freedom's shedding off your skin, you know. Uh, Moralizing. Yeah, it's just, you know, you just feel it. I mean, it's just, I don't know what that is, but whatever that is, it works. Especially the position that you have been in. Like you, yeah. I don't think that you or myself, I had ever been in a position where someone was able to talk to me like I was subhuman. A dog. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Not I even said, a dog. I, treat, I treat my dogs great. It's, 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 like you said, subhuman. The first, subhuman. Time they start, the, the first person that says it, it's always like, or talks what? to you and then the next person and the next car, the next, and then you realize like, Oh, that's right. I'm, I'm this guy. <laughs> I'm supposed to be. Talking I'm a piece of dirt. Oh, wow. He's not wrong. That's actually how that's right. That's what I, you, I that's what I would have expected you to talk to someone. Did you worry? Life. Did you worry Matt about, cause it was one of my big worries is like becoming part of that prisonized institutionalized mentality because that was one of my big fears was is I don't want to I want to stay me I want to do whatever I can do to make me whatever Brent would think and do out there I don't want to lose that in here because I saw a lot of guys 
that's the one thing about Shawshank Redemption I think is interesting. Is like some of those those key phrases they say that you know, get busy living or get busy dying. There's there's that's kind of the two things you have in prison. The guys that give up and they're basically in a fetal position and then you see them laying and doing not anything. And then you see the guys that are working out, they're reading, uh, they're, they've got jobs. Classes. Yes. Yeah. There. Yeah. Yeah. You see, I, you, you I, see two, two totally, you see guys that are in shape and you see guys that get fat and there's yeah. like not really in betweens. There's it's either one or the other. And for me, it was like, man, I got to do whatever I can not to become that can't you know don't fall off that and I, so I, I use like five different strategy tools in prison that kind of were what I used when I was building the company but they, I found that they worked for me in prison you know like if like the first one was if if when I especially when I got there because you're like looking around thinking well what's what's everybody doing like what do I what do I do what's everybody else doing and I, I started looking around so I really humbled myself, not to say a whole hell of a lot, just look around what, what's going on. And then I, I sought people out. So, you know, like you're doing this, how, like how did you seem like you're doing your time really well? Like, tell me about. So I, I talked to like two or three people and those people like helped me get a good job or they helped me kind of learn the prison rules and stuff. And I think that's important, not just in prison, but generally, you know, if you humble yourself and you see somebody doing it right, go and talk to them because it, it's like getting the answers to the test before the test, you know, yeah. get in, know, and, but first look around you and then seek the people that you need help from. And it, and it works, yeah. you know, getting it's, good it's routine, setting up your routine and getting yes. a solid routine as best as you can. Yes. Is, is crucial to keeping your mind feeling you know, like you've got your mind set. Yeah. The, the second thing that I had was like, um, it's kind of like the whole Shawshank thing with Andy Dufresne. You know, he, he chips through that that wall. Um, wall every night for 19 years. But the reason why he does it, he's got the San Juan Taneo that he's thinking of. It's the bluest of the blue waters, the whitest of white sands, the little place that he wants to put in the, the boat. He wants to take people on fish. He's got all that playing in his mind. And I think that San Juan Taneo thing that of what is, you know, what do you got? What keeps you going? What fuels you up? Even in prison, I think you need that uh, yeah. while you're living in that environment and when you purpose. get out. To, to me, I, I just said, you know, to me, I it boiled down to purpose. You know, I had purpose. to have a purpose. Once I got a purpose, yeah, that changed everything for me. Like everything yeah. became better and I stopped hating being in prison and it started being I don't want almost almost like a blessing because I suddenly had enough time to work on something on things that I loved. And so what what was your so isn't that interesting though? That it, that, it is it took it just took me a while because I'm yeah. pig, I'm pig headed, you know. First I of course blamed everybody. And then and that's easy. Old, I mean, when you I go through a lot, it's it's easier to blame somebody than to turn on yourself and say, okay, what, what I need to work on, you know, but how, stu how stupid is that? How stupid, like, especially in my case, yeah, I'm totally guilty. Yeah. There's nobody to blame, but me right. still took me a year or two to figure that out to, sure. to realize like, what do you do? Yeah, well, you that? see guys like go through bad marriages or whatever, and they might've been just total dicks and they, um, they can't come to it until they finally realize that that was really their fault. <laughs> it's just like, it's the same thing. But, but you feel um, better. 
you'll feel yeah. better about yourself. Yeah. And I, you know, dad and I had to go through kind of our own relationship struggle. And, uh, you know, he, strangely enough, he died. Uh, he got out right when the March 17th, when COVID hit, which I always think that had to be like the weirdest time to get out of prison. Mm -hmm. Like the whole world had shut down. I went to pick him up at the airport and it was basically vacant. I was thinking how weird it was for him to walk into this world after he had a 10 year sentence and more or less it was shut down. And um, he was only out for a couple of months and died, but he, 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 he wasn't well, but you know, dad and I never had that, you know, that conversation. Cause I, our, our thing was really, I, I, like I said, I idolized him. I thought he was a brilliant man and, and he, I wouldn't be the person I am today without him and what he taught me in life. The thing I struggled with was, is that I never could quite figure out if I was being used or if he just had that much confidence in me, you know, it was, it was like, um, cause he was a great, and I, I, I say manipulator in a positive way, because if you're in the business and the world business, you you have to be. And he he was very good at finding people in their talents and then building that up, just like a good coach. You know, it's, that's, you know, any NFL team or baseball team, whatever you find those people, you build them up. You're a good coach. That was dad. And so one of the things that that I struggle with as a son, as we as we kind of got through this, this ugliness was is that he had gone through this before. And he knew, which I really didn't, the danger of putting yourself, running yourself into a burning house. And so we had this kind of a weird dynamic of, you know, I think, you know, I've, I've kind of, we, Tyler, my brother sent me this uh, podcast. It was really interesting in how I, you can be two people. You could be somebody that, um, loves you unconditionally and could use you, you know, the, the, the it could be, it can be both and it doesn't have to be one or the other. Yeah. And he could be that person. And he can, so for me, once I came to that was, it wasn't one or the other dad was a really good dad, but did he think that I'd be the best person to go out and speak to the regulators? Yeah, he did. Yeah. And, and I thought I was too. So, you know, uh, you know, looking back on it, would I do it again? Probably would. Isn't that weird? I went to prison, basically putting myself in that, that burning house. I just maybe now feel like maybe I could do it better. But at that time, the weight of the world of the company was either going to crash and burn or we had to figure something out. And if it was slim to none, he went for slim and he tried to make it. And that's the weird thing. You know, you go back into these weird big cases and like, what would you do now? And I don't even know if Julie would agree with this, my wife, but I would probably go back out in there and try to save the day, even though that's probably not the smartest thing to do, because you just I think you just wired a certain way. But I certainly don't blame my dad for that. But I think about it on my terms with my own daughters. Would I have put them into a burning house going into it if I was if I had brought them into the company? And I don't know. I don't think I would. I don't think I would, but that's the difference between, and maybe it's the difference between a father and a son and a, and a father and a daughter. I don't know. It's kind of complicated though. He once got plastic surgery because he didn't like the photo on his wanted poster. 
His legend precedes him. The way indictments precede arrests. He is the most interesting man in the world. I don't typically commit crime, but when I do, it's bank fraud. Stay greedy, my friends. Support the channel. Join Matthew Cox's Patreon. Well, if it had all worked out, you wouldn't be asking your, yourself this question at all. So, True. You know, exactly. in, in his mind, he may have, he may not have even for one second thought it was an issue. It's just like, oh, this is going to work. Yes. Most and that, and that, that's a good point because that's exactly how he thought. Right. He was, he, he wasn't a naysayer and never thought it was always this. And, and for the most part, and your point's very well taken. So many times it did work. Right. You know, as a, as a family, we were, we did a lot of things and overcame a lot of things and did um, bigger things than I ever thought that we could have. And I think a lot of it had to do with just, you know, he always told me as a kid, Brent, you see, you got a good plan and you take action with it, you can accomplish anything. And, and I think that's, you know, his mindset, his mindset was we we'll tackle this. We got through it before. I mean, he, we in the nineties, I told you we went through that and we got through it. I think he thought, I thought, thought we'd get through it again. Well, um, so I was just thinking, listen, a lot of the CEOs of these companies that started yeah. massive companies and, and, um, you know, like the, the visionaries right now that are out there are, are yeah. really just con men that it worked out. Sure. You know? Like Elon Musk, you know how many times he was he almost went under? <laughs> if he'd gone under and lost all the investors' money, yeah. he'd be this piece of garbage, con mm -hmm. man, don't trust him, he's a scumbag. Instead, this guy's a visionary. Yeah. You know? And yeah. and so things just, you know. And you see, and you see that I've read so many books and God, I don't know how many books. I've read a book a, a week in prison, but all those different stories of people who made it, they 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 did it by the skin of their teeth. And, yeah. and got through it. And that's well, that's you know, all the, about the, the taking the risk. With, the problem with like you and me now is how many times I have people talk to me and I'll say, yeah, you know, you just think about doing this, you think about doing that. And they're like, yeah, bro, you ought to help. Like, would you be interested in coming? I'm like, nah, not why. And I was, you know, and, and there was like, why? I don't understand it. It sounds like an amazing idea. Like, why don't we do this? I'm like, because at my age and with my background, I can't fuck up again. Yes. And, right. and if, if this goes wrong with you, it's civil. Yeah. And maybe you claim the worst thing you, you maybe get sued. Maybe you just claim bankruptcy. Most likely mm -hmm. you just walk away and the company goes under. If I do it and I take people's money to invest in a company and it goes bad, I go back to prison, even though it's civil. Right. I don't, I'll never be given the benefit of the doubt that you're given. And I just can't, take those risks anymore yeah and, and they don't realize that you know normal people it's a different life that. i mean yeah. I, I think a lot of people now. yeah and i think man a lot of people don't realize that you know when you're in we're in the position that we're in it's a life sentence because you have you live as an ex-felon you, you, it doesn't go away it's yeah like, like okay you are released we are released and we are out of prison which is fantastic i not want to give that out but uh you have to work really hard to to get yourself even with everybody because we're the last of our breed. You can legally discriminate against an ex-felon. Yeah. Where absolutely. you live or if you want to get a job, it's legal. 
so you have to work a little extra hard to get that job or get that place, whatever uh, you're trying to do. And I'm not saying that as like, oh, poor, poor ex-felon. It's just that getting out, that's one of the things you've got to be equipped with to know I've got to be mindset wise, know that I'm going to have to tackle that. Yeah. Listen, I, I have, because of my podcast, I have guys uh, reach out to me all the time asking me, you know, extremely inappropriate questions. And, and sure. it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's like, listen, I can't answer that. No, I'm just saying hypothetically. I'm like, look, you don't, you don't see that. <laughs> I know that you think hypothetically somehow or another absolves you or me. But the truth is, I said, that's a that's something that your your idiot buddies told you. I said, I can't even have the conversation. No, but you wouldn't do anything. It doesn't matter. The fact is, they will simply go through your phone, get my name, add me to the indictment. I cannot go to trial because I cannot get on the, on the witness stand and explain this guy <laughs> asking these questions, and I didn't tell him anything. I said, right. because as soon as I do, they're going to say, Mr. Cox, how many felonies did you have you pled guilty yeah. to? How, how long did you do in prison? How many times, how many frauds have you committed? Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to say, yes, all that's true. But this time I'm innocent. I said, I go straight to jail. And I get a, a, one of the harshest sentences out there because I'm yeah. like a category three or four on the criminal history level. You know, and none of these things, when you're telling this to the guy who's asking you this, in a, this silly, inappropriate question, are they thinking about at all? And I have to think about all those things. If I have you're a so right. steal weapons permit, you're not getting in my car. Right. I, I'm now, a, I, I, they're going to say constructive possession. He had the gun. Yeah. Because, because, a lot of that too. Right. And it's like, well, okay, but I didn't have the gun. He has a, it doesn't, I, I don't want you in the car. I don't yeah. want to have to be and try and explain that to somebody. Mm -mm. I'm in a bad spot. They'll lock me up in jail for six months. Even if they drop the charges and let me go, I'll lose everything. Mm hmm. And people just don't realize the position you're in for the rest of your life. For the rest of my life, it is yes, sir, no, sir. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes, officer. I was I was speeding. Thank God you pulled me over. Can I please get the ticket? Here's my license. I mean, I'm the mm -hmm. most polite person I've ever been in my entire life because I'm actually be. concerned. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's such a good point because it, it, that's that's something that just your your life is forever changed in that because you do have that that chip has been inserted into your head that this is different now. Yeah, this my life as I think through things and how I do things, I have to factor that in because I know what that whole thing was, and I know I don't want that because that is a terrible. That's the that's the worst. <laughs> you, you can do anything you can to avoid that. Yeah. yeah I'm thankful. Sure. I mean, I'm not, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying I'm just, and honestly, I'm extremely thankful to even be out of prison. You know, like it, it just like in your case, what if you'd gone to trial mm -hmm. because you were hard headed and because yeah. you felt like I really didn't do anything wrong. And you said, you know what, I'm going to go to, I'm going to go to trial. Listen, you'd have gotten 10 to 15 years. Sure. You'd still be you'd be in prison right now. Mm -hmm. you're, you'd be hearing about your daughter getting married and you're not going to be there or right. your daughter having a, a, a baby, your grandson, mm -hmm. you ain't going to be there. 
you know, mm-hmm. it would be. And, and I'll tell you, Matt, the other thing that I think about is you, you also have different moments when you get out where you have this feeling like um, I've, I've got three daughters. So two of them have gotten married. Uh, Courtney just had uh, uh, twin boys. And there's moments that I share with myself because I think it's that I don't know how to express it to anyone around me, but I, my thought is, is, God, just thank God I'm here. Yeah. Thank God I'm here. Like if we go on a family trip or something and we're all together, there's a moment where I just thank God I'm here because what a difference that is than not being, because I know what it's like when I've had other things that have gone on and I wasn't there. And there's like, that feeling of just complete loss of not being a part of that. And then when you do get out, cause you were just talking about the other things or the chip in your head, there is a chip in my head that is, I do appreciate some of the littler things just because I know that I'm here and not there. And I don't know if that goes away or not. I don't, I don't know. It's, I've been out for six years now. I haven't gone away yet. No, I was going to say, sometimes I have to remind myself, like somebody will cut me off when I'm driving and there's yeah. a second of anger. <laughs> and I think, whoa, whoa, listen, like, you know what I'm saying? Like I'll, the, the line's too long. And I'm like, you yeah. spent six months to a year just standing in line in the chow hall and to get your laundry and commissary. Oh, yeah. Like you can wait. I used to get so upset if I would go to a restaurant and they said, oh, it's a 45 minute wait. I'd be like, yeah, I'm not <laughs> now. My girlfriend, who was also in prison for like four years, you yeah. know, um, we get there and we're just like, and you'll watch three couples in a row. They'll leave. 45 minutes. Oh, I'm, oh no, I'm leaving. Oh, 45 <laughs> minutes. Oh, can I sit at the bar? Can I this? Can I? Oh, no, I'm going to leave. 45. And they're leaving. And we're, we're like, they're like 45 minutes. I'm like, give me the thing. You know, <laughs> you're know saying, here's my phone number. Like. I can. I always say that prison was like a Disney World nightmare because you everything is lines in Disney World. This was in prison. You know, I want to make a phone call, stand in line. I want to take a shower, stand in line. I want to get on this uh, True Links, Core Links, stand in line. It was just everything you wanted to do was stand in line, unless you went out to the yard, you know, and did whatever. But well, oh, oh, even then, you want to watch a go to the. They had a movie room in Colton at one point. You want to go to the movie room, stand in line. You want to get line. some. You want to get something out of the wreck. Uh, out of the wreck. Uh, equipment. Uh-huh. Stand, stand in line. line. Uh, you want to get your laundry. <laughs> stand in line. You want to go to commissary. Commissary is three hours. That's two oh, or three yeah. hours of of sitting there. You know, but, I, I try to avoid commissary like uh like the plague. But you had to go at some points. You know. Oh yeah, at some point. You know, like. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I, I, I was gonna say. So, how much time did you actually get? Did you was it three years? No, I got I got a five year sentence. So, oh, did you? Um, you said it was zero yeah. to three years. No, zero to five, and then I I I ended up, Matt. Luckily enough, I was able to get into RDAP, and uh, that knocked a year off. So I really did three years. What did you think of RDAP? Well, you know, it's fascinating because it you know that thing actually goes on in prison. Um, I've got a couple of different opinions about RDAP. One is I think that the program could be good because I think the guys want to adhere to certain things that are there that they're trying. But I, I think that the people that are instructing want to be cops. And so 
for the majority of people that we had, and I'm not saying everybody was, there was a couple of good people that, that were in the program that were instructors, but for the most part, you had guys that are trying to set people back. You know, if they said something or did something, they gave them two more months or they tried to kick them out of the program, all these different things. And so it was, it was, you know, but as far as a nine month program that could be, Good. I, I think they have some recidivism thing that that's a little bit better by people going through it, but I think it could be better. Um, right. But I think rational thinking and all those things are probably things that could, should be taught probably in high school, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, but it's not. So, it's not. Um, so I would like to say that what, you know, one, um, you do not get to the top of your field and end up working in the Bureau of Prisons. <laughs> so, so for you know um nobody graduates college with a you know a medical degree and says you know what are you doing i'm going for the uh, federal bureau of prisons you know yeah. a medical position so right. you know or or for a drug treatment specialist or whatever they are like so you're not going to get top quality people um right. so you know i understand there's always that guy there's always a, a jerk here a jerk there mm -hmm. um but overall i thought that rdap was was for being in prison yeah. i thought it was a great program i think the the concept of the of the program maybe it's not they're not run all that well the concept of the program i thought was great and honestly i think because you know let's face it it wasn't about drugs no it, it, no, it's, it's about thinking about behavior modification and honestly exactly. and, and really um like i to me i think it should be offered to everybody like i, I think it should I be totally agree I, I totally agree and, I, and you know there, there was some really uh what am i going to say that there were some things that happened in our little group that would never happen outside of that prison yeah, these guys world. Would never have to, they'd never be they'd never be in a position to have right. to really look at themselves and yeah. categorize themselves and 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 admit to their, well, their behaviors. One thing I was thinking was when we did those readiness statements, you know, the, one of the guys got up and, and he it was like, it was the first time that it just really hit him. What all had happened. And he just broke down crying. And nobody cries in prison. No, I mean, yeah. not usually. And I just remember um, one of the guys got up and, and right beside him and read his readiness statement. I thought, man, that just, whatever just happened right there was, was pretty cool. I mean, we're yeah. in prison and and this is all happening right here in front of us. And that, I think that was the other thing, Matt, that talking about prison, so many people say so many different things about prison, but somebody asked me the other day, like, what was your biggest surprise about prison? I said, quite honestly, I met a lot of really good people. You know, the, there were people that weren't good, but there's yeah. people that aren't good on the outside. But I was surprised how many people helped me how many people, you know, were smart um, that, you know, really figuring out how to get strategies through their dark places. And um, for me, you know, that, that's one of the reasons I started my podcast was, is it was, you know, Nightmare Success is in and out was to talk to the guys, not, not about like, you know, why did you do the crime? How did you get through it? What did you feel? What were you thinking? Um, how did you get to the next step in your strategy of what you were doing at that time? And, you know, the guys stories are all, we all, all of us, just like you and I can sit here and talk, Matt, we've got a common thread. We can sit here and talk about our depth because we both went to start. We can talk about prison because we both went to prison, but everybody has a different story going into prison. 
and then how they handle prison and then how they get out. So I think that's what makes all those things unique with uh, with the podcast Nightmare Success. And, and, and I think what happens, too, is, is that when people go through dark times and they have strategies of how to get through that, how they adapt and how they survive, I think people listening to that think, huh, God, hell, that could have been me or. I'm in that spot right now. How do I step out of this? Because everybody, you know, my thought on nightmare success on coining that phrase was everybody. And like you said, Matt, all the the, the visionaries and these books that you read about that built these gigantic uh, turn of the century companies that are that are changing the world had to walk through their own fears, their own unknowns, their own nightmares to get to where they wanted to be, to set themselves free to whatever success that is. So everybody has that. Everybody builds up prisons in their own mind. And how the question is, is how do you step? How do you take and step into something that's not comfortable? And we saw that in prison so often where, you know, somebody would get so institutionalized that their ugly routine, the one that they did every day because it made them feel like they were in control, got so much into who they were that they got scared of freedom. They got scared of the outside. And I, I think that happens, you know, once you get out of prison, you start looking around, you see that all over because you see people, okay, I'm a, the guy's in a bad marriage. Why didn't he get out of it? You know, he's in a bad job. Why does he yeah. step out? Why he had a health crisis. He can step up. So you see people all over the place. What, what is it? And it's usually stepping into the unknowns because it's scary. But it's the only way to get over to the other side so that you, and there, there's somebody I saw the other day that was talking about, there's two things in life that makes it difficult, staying in your comfort zone or getting out of your comfort zone. Right, right. <laughs> yes, either way. Yeah, I, I remember, it's funny, the people that I found that were the most miserable mm -hmm. in prison were the guys that were, two, two of blaming other people for being yeah. there. And two, complaining about the conditions, mm. you know, and, and, you know, they just complained about everything and they were, they were miserable and nobody wants to be around you. You're miserable. And you're not yeah, miserable what, life like that, especially in prison, you know, the, and the, the environment's not going to change. You're not going to all of a sudden they're going to, Oh, you don't like it here. Well, we've got a better place for you right over here. You just should have said something. You don't, you just have to adapt to it. You've got a plastic chair, a locker and a bunk bed. Get used to it because that's you know, going to be the way it is. Right. You know, what's funny is, uh, you know, I always hear these guys like I'll see there's a lot of these prison, um, you know, podcasts and stuff. And they'll do a comparison on what prisons are like in America and what prisons are like, let's say, in Scandinavia. And it's like, yeah, they're, you know, they're amazing. Right. Yeah. And, and those prisons are great. But you go, mm -hmm. wait a second. like. What are prisons like in, you know, in Venezuela, in, Cuba? and you know <laughs> yeah. what I'm saying? Like, like, you know, you guys are saying like, it's, oh, poor, poor me. It's like, you committed a crime. You went yeah. to prison. What did you think they were going to treat you like? Right. Like, what do you want to be like? I, I get it. Yeah. Time is outrageous, but the environment's not that bad in prison. It's not great. It's, it's not great. The, there, there's a ton of things they could do better. But well, and I think I think, too, Matt, it's uh, it's interesting to me because, you know, I lived three years without air conditioning at Leavenworth oh. and it gets it gets pretty hot, in Kansas. But I, I'll say this, though, you know, the guys knew how to handle it. Like before there was ever air conditioning. First of all, there's probably like six or seven days that are really that's 
horrible. I mean, it's like 100 degrees. It doesn't get cooler at night and you sweat in bed. And that's that's but really, there's only like six or seven days. And what they what what we would all do and you would get your, your ass kicked if you didn't do this. You let the window open at night and let whatever cool air there is. If it's you know, if it gets down to 75 degrees. That's going to be as cool as you get. And then you shut that window in the morning that captures and keeps that in anybody who opened up a window, you, they'd go searching for you. Cause it was like a furnace that come through there and made it hotter. But I was, the only reason I brought that up is, is that I found that even with that, you can adapt and get used to it. I got used to it. I, I almost think that you get used to it because you're outside a lot. In fact, I thought it was more, they didn't turn the, the, uh, the heat on until the week before, uh thanksgiving and in the midwest it gets pretty cold like in october november i thought that was worse than the heat but my my whole point is is that you're you make a really good point is you don't want to talk to somebody who's whining about that because it's not going to change you got to just figure it out he's got to you know all of us are dealing with this so it's not just you you go figure that out we don't want to talk to you until you come back and you can hang out yeah pitch I remember uh, my ex-wife, I would talk to her on the phone and she would say he was complaining about having to spend $1,500 because her husband's um, H2, her, her, you know, the Hummer H2, yeah. the uh, transmission had just gone out and the warranty had just ended and there was $1,500 and she was pissed off about that. And I was like, well, do you have the $1,500? Well, of course I have the $1,500. And she was like, I mean, I, even if I didn't, I put on my credit card, I this, I that. Like, you've got multiple kids in private school. You live in a half a million dollar house. You guys are yeah. making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. You have to spend $1,500. You just got back from a, a week-long vacation. And I yeah. thought, like, you don't have problems. Like, these no. aren't problems. Spending $1,500 on your brand new Hummer isn't a problem. A problem is they gave me a locker that has <laughs> that has three shelves in it and one right. side has no shelves. And so I yeah. bought new shelves and yeah. now the COs are going around searching Looking for that. to see who has more than three shelves. Yeah, it was contraband take shelves. my shelves. Like that's what I'm down to. Yeah. And, you know, and so – you know, I, I would get thrilled when, you know, they would come out with like the movie schedule on Wednesday nights. They showed movies like what yeah. movie are they going to show? And it was like, oh, my God, they're showing the new Planet of the Apes. Like, yeah, I would talk about that and think about that. all <laughs> Or I would get a book that I love. Like, yeah, it just came, I just got the new oh, yeah. Tom Clancy. Exactly. It's, oh, it's so good. And it's funny you talk about the movie thing because it was movies were huge. Um at Leavenworth for uh, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night. And we all go into that, that gymnasium with our plastic chairs and, and man, it was a big deal. And you know, the funny thing was too, man, is they say, people walk around like in the yard and whatever, you go to the movie tonight. Hell, like, like there was a choice. Hell, everybody was going to the movie. What else were we doing? You got to go to the movie now? What's the movie? I don't know. You got to go to the movie. But of course you go to the movie. The other the other thing I always thought that was funny at Leavenworth was is that you know people stole food and did, made like the pizzas and all these different things. But it was funny because like when we went down to the gymnasium, there were people on both sides in the hallway 
and they all had their goods, you know, like this little brownie thing was like two stamps. And this was, you know, the pizza thing that they'd made with the, whatever the tortillas and whatever that was four stamps. And so you kind of watch somebody made popcorn. So you just walk in. It was really actually like a movie. You, yeah. you would pay your stuff and go in, you grab your soda out of the, the, uh, the mop bucket, you know, and that was two stamps, but it, it felt like, it felt like we were walking in, man. We're, yeah. we're, we're walking into our own movie, man. I got our own stuff. I got my candy and I've got my soda here and, and we're going to watch. Yeah, but it, yeah. it, it, it was a big deal. I mean, that was, um, I guess that was probably one of the biggest deals that we had. And it was, whether well, it was a good movie or a bad movie, it was an event for yeah. sure. I, uh, it's, it's what you were saying too about uh, uh, the people you met, which was, was shocking to me. Uh -huh. you know? was that I did, I met some of the best people I've ever known. Yeah. You know, like it was, uh, yeah. it, it was a great. And I think that, I think that's one of the things that, um, you know, going through the experience that we've gone through, you wouldn't know that unless you go through the experience that we've gone through. The, the overall society impression is, is that everybody is bad in there because yeah. that's where they are. But, yeah, there, there's, there's, there's no doubt there are. No doubt there are some bad people. Oh, yeah. yeah not, I certainly don't want to get that impression. No. But yeah, but I for think. for a lot of reasons, there's people, you know, when the very first day I got there, the, the guy, uh, Romo, who was uh, a Hispanic guy that was a boxer, and, and he just immediately said, man, you don't look like you've ever been here before. You're going to need a lot of help. And, you know, he immediately starts helping me while my locker cleaning it. And he says, you know, they we got to make this bed military style because the warden comes through on Friday. Let me show you how to do that. And I just literally had gotten introduced to him. And he within that, you know, minute or two, he had plugged in and, and was helping me get to the next step. And oh, they're the uh, guys that will come to you immediately and say, hey, I have a locker for your lock. I have shower slides for you. Here's which a, is huge, a, by the way. Yeah, of course. Right here's a huge tooth, or here, here's a toothbrush. Yeah. Here's this. Just give me the shower slides back. Give me this back. Yeah. Buy your own lock immediately. Yeah. Just give me the stuff back, and you're like, well, what do I owe you for that? Like, no, you don't owe anything. Just give me it back. And you know, here's a couple soups, and here, and it's like, yeah, oh, it really opens your eyes, and it happens right. immediately because if it yeah. doesn't happen, it sucks. <laughs> somebody's that's hard right. time <laughs> it's hard time until you go to until you go to yeah. commissary and get those things if you're lucky enough to have somebody that puts money on your books right away exactly you know like it could be you know so yeah there's there's some there are some great uh great things that happen it's funny now thinking about how small they are it sounds small when you and i are talking about it but when you're telling me <laughs> when you're telling me that i can't even imagine if somebody wouldn't have given me shower shoes yeah. You know, what would I have done? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, other but, than just in general, the filth, but not, not just that. It's 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 that, you know, you could get staff. You could. Get, yeah. I mean, who knows? And there were guys that had staff. That, that was oh. another thing I was really scared of him because we had a guy when we were in RDAP. And that was the other thing you were talking about, man. It was great living in RDAP. I mean, they, we had all the rules and stuff, but man, it was so much cleaner. You know, oh, yeah. it was that was I would rather have the rules and stuff and be in a clean place with the bathroom was just, you know, totally I loved clean. It it, I loved it because it was quiet. And quiet. You could read. It was like being in a library. Yeah. yeah. It was the best bathroom. Yeah. That was great. Yeah, I, I would. And I, I think 
I think it's surprising to that that they have that in the BOP. I'm surprised that that was able that whole program was able to get because I do think that's the best thing that the prison system offers. Uh, and I'm totally agreeing with you. I don't know why they don't teach it to everybody. Yeah, it's in the prison. Um, so did you write your book when you were locked up? I didn't. Um, I did it when I I did it when I got out. Um, and I think one of the things was, I was thinking, Matt, when I was in, I didn't know, you know, I was more just like focusing on, you know, day to day. And I, I probably could have started writing my book then, but I kind of wanted to write it once I got out just to have a, uh, maybe a different perspective of what I was doing and what I was saying. But no, I, I wrote it when I got out and, um, I think I waited like a couple of years before I started writing. And, you know, when you get out, you were, you were, were you six years, six years in? What do you mean? How long did you, how long were you in prison? 13 years. 13 years. I, you just doubled it on me. So I can't imagine what 13 years feels like because for me, you know, I just did three of those 13, but it takes you a little bit of while just to kind of get, you know, it's almost like you get sea legs and you got to kind of steady yourself. It's like you're trying to jump in a moving car. Yeah. Like what, what, what do they miss? What's going on? How do I fit in? Uh, am I still me? All those things that happen when you get out. I can't imagine 13 years because 13 years, there is truly a lot of things that happen. You know, there, there was what, what years were you in? Oh, keep in mind, there were no smartphones when I, when I went in prison. So yeah. I'd never seen like an iPhone. I'd That'd never, crazy. no Wi-Fi. There's no, yeah. I remember when I first got out, like when I went in, texting had just come out. You yeah. couldn't, you couldn't watch YouTube on your phone. You couldn't, mm -hmm. that was all, none of that was going on. Yeah. Um, and when I, when I got out, I got out in, in um, 2019. I was, I got hired. I went to a gym work, uh, a buddy of mine owned a gym went there. And I remember my probation officer had emailed me something yeah, saying, you know, you need to print this, fill it out, sign it. And so my buddy goes here, give me your phone. And I said, okay. And, and I, he said, I go, can I, how do I print this? And he said, well, I got a printer over there. He said, we can print it right now. I, I, I said, I said, do I go to a Kinko's? Do I, do I <laughs> there's no Kinko's. He said, no, like no Kinko's. He said, they, it got, he said, it's UPS. He said, yeah. well, I got a printer right there. And I went, yeah, but I, I got to print this. It's on my phone. It's on my email. And he goes, here, give me your thing. And he goes, hold on. He did, 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 did. And, and he goes, all right, I printed it. And now the printer's 40 feet away. Yeah. And I go, no, seriously, bro. I said, I, like, I need to print like it. Magic. And, and he looked at me, he goes, I printed it. And I went, how? Mm -hmm. I go, how? Like, like, I'm like, 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 I'm not so magic. Like, yeah. I, I'm not going to walk over there. You think it's a joke? And he goes, I go, seriously, bro. I need to print. I need to print it. And he goes, come here. We walk over and sure enough, he printed like 12 pages. And I was like, how? And he goes, it's Wi-Fi. I go, what's that? And he goes, oh man, man. <laughs> like, this is going to be, I'm going to go. Yeah. Do you. <laughs> I mean, I just can't, you know, for for me, in just the short amount of time of three years, I noticed that when I went in, you know, phones didn't have all the notifications and stuff on it. And so when I got out, I noticed that like when I was with my daughters and like we'd be watching TV, they were constantly looking at their phones. I'm like, what are they doing? 
why are they why are they watching why, why are they looking at their phones when we're watching TV? That was one of the weird phenomenons that I saw was like people went from having the phone in their pocket or a woman in their purse or whatever that they just constantly are looking at their phone. And yeah. I was like, what is what are you doing? And what's happening is, is they don't even realize that that phone all of a sudden has notifications on it all the time. And they're just constantly looking at it with whatever you're doing. You can be uh, watch TV or movie or whatever. Everybody's just looking at their phones. Well, that I, was a I, weird I, thing because that wasn't that way when I went in. And that was oh, just in listen, three years. Thirteen In 13 years, imagine I went into, we would go to a restaurant or anywhere we would go. And there would be, there's like, you know, there's 20 tables and 95% of everybody is sitting there with their spouse or three other people. And all three of them are just staring at their phone. They're yeah. not even talking. Yeah. And I was like, and people are walking by. And I, I thought people that had to freak you out. Oh, and people had earbuds in. Yeah. Around, <laughs> talking, having conversations. Looking like they're talking to themselves. I'm thinking people are talking to me. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I saw, I told them and I, and I'm like, yeah, what, 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 but they just have earbuds in. They're having conversations on the telephone. And I don't know. I don't know. That took me a couple of days to realize mm -hmm. that I was, I wasn't crazy. And yeah. They weren't crazy. They were, you know, they had earbuds and, what do you think? What do you think getting out was your biggest? Was it just technology? Was it technology that was like the big piece that was like? Yeah, the technology because nobody because it's it's hard to it's hard to ask people questions because you know younger people they think you're you know you're an idiot if you ask them mm -hmm. because it's just and, they they've done them since they were born so it's right natural. they have no idea and, and then even other people that understand the situation they still talk to you in such a way that you're like okay you're still you're talking french right now like i don't yeah. understand <laughs> you're telling me to airdrop this mm -hmm. and turn, you're telling me well go to your yeah, what's airdrop right or, <laughs> what's dropbox yeah. or go to your set go to your settings and turn on airdrop yeah i don't know what i don't know what you're saying i don't even know what settings <laughs> I don't know. You know I, I don't know anything about it, and and you know, so it it, it took a, it took time. But I got buddies that have been out, you know, the whole time now, and yeah. I'm now showing them how to do things on their phones, and I'm explaining to them to do. Then they're like, "Bro, like you really adapted mm -hmm. to this very like you know." I edit, I edit my own clips. I edit all kinds of stuff. I make videos. I do. So I, I really jumped into yeah, it. You I'm picked not, up on it quick. Yeah, I don't think I'm great, but I, you know. But I, you got to be you got to be willing to learn and do it too. And it that's you know, a lot of people are really scared. People, especially older people, are really scared to try something that's that's they think that's going to explode or something. Like that. The, yeah. You do something on the computer, it's going to explode, or the, the phone will quit working if you do something. It's, yeah. it's Freaks them out. Yeah, I get weird. it. I'm a little bit like Listen, that. I start hitting buttons. I get frustrated. I get yeah. The, the anxiety is yeah. overwhelming. But I'm I'm also just like you said. I'm I'm like I think most people, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've heard this. Like most people have like you know they have throughout their life they have multiple multi million dollar ideas. Sure. The problem is most people are just unable to pull the trigger. Mm -hmm. And I'm big on pulling the trigger and I'm, I'm okay with failing. Yeah. Like I've failed. Have to fail. life. I, I think that's maybe one of the big, biggest misunderstandings for people where they think, Oh man, I don't know how he did that in business. Well, 
most of it is just doing it. And then you figure out, oh, well, that that didn't quite work. I'm going to have to readjust that. That's not a failure. That's a mistake that you don't want to repeat. So in business, you know, a lot of times you get ideas like I, I loved getting, especially when I was in my 20s, looking at something and saying, oh, my God, I could take that and implement it over here and, and maybe tweak it a little bit. And then I don't even have to try to figure it out. I've already got it. And that happened like two or three times to me where I I called somebody, they talked to me and they gave me their stuff. And I was like, oh, my God. And I all it was is reaching out to them, creating a conversation like, a, you know, one time it was reading an article about this one guy and he was just blowing things up. And I called him and I said, man, you're doing this really cool stuff. And and I noticed down at the bottom here, they kind of buried it. But you're you're doubling market share where nobody's doubling market share. What are you doing? He said, well, young Cassidy, so nobody's asked me that question. Why don't you fly out here and see me? I flew out there and saw that guy and it changed everything in this one division we had. And I, if I could teach anything to kids, it would be to do that. Don't be afraid to go and talk because usually somebody who's doing something that they're really good at, they'd like to talk about it a little bit because, you know, they're good at it. So yeah. they might want to say, yeah, this is how I did it. But if you don't ask them, they don't tell you. So it's, it, to me, that's that's like one of the secret formulas. Like when we blew up and got big in our company, a lot of it was other people's. We had some we had some unique ideas, but a lot of it was taken from other people's ideas that we implemented into our business, and we were able to take off with it in a different industry. And I think you know if if there's any tips out there for this old guy, fifty five years old, is is Keep your eyes open because a lot of the answers to what you're looking for are in the market. You can take those and then go back to what you said, Matt. Do it. Engage. Take action with it because you're going to make mistakes. But as long as you're taking action, that like puts you like in the 20 percentile. Everybody else, the 80 percentile, they're sitting there watching you on the sidelines, wishing they were in the game, but they just don't have the guts to get out there on the field. That's the that's the real secret sauce to the whole thing is so many people are just afraid to go out and say, I want to play. Let me in. Yeah. That's that. And if you do that, you start gaining confidence. You start saying, well, how I belong out here. I'm, I don't know. Well, these guys aren't as tough as I thought they were. I can play with this. And I think that's, that's the secret. We got to step into it. And that's the thing that just scares the shit out of people. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I agree. I, it's, it's, oh, I, I don't want to go off on a tangent. Um, it's just I was gonna say like, I, there was multiple guys in prison. There was there was a guy in prison. The short version is like he never had a driver's license. He never he got he got arrested when he was like 19 years old. Like he he just it, it, he was a hacker and um I think he got in trouble when he was I think he was 19 when he got 19 or 20 when he got arrested. Um, yeah. Was, yeah. Heroin addict. He did like six years. Didn't know what he was gonna do. Had never had a real job. Just, you know, and I was like, yeah, but you like kind of hacking. Well, I mean, oh, yeah, but I can't do that. I said, yeah, but there are legal ways to do it. Yeah. And I was like, you know, you ought to, you ought to get, you know, I'm sure there's, there are certificates you can get. No, well, I can't work in that industry and I can't this, there, I'm, I got to, I'm, I'm in here for hacking. And I said, right. I said, listen, let me explain something. And at that point I'd been locked up like 10 or 11 years. I said, I've been locked up like 11 years. I mm -hmm. said, you know how many hacker, how many guys have been locked up for the charge of hacking? Yeah. He goes, no. And I said, almost nobody. 
Right. Almost no one. I said, that is specific. If I was you, I would lean into that. I would tell yeah. everybody that's what I was locked up for. I mm-hmm. said, that makes you dangerous. It makes you brilliant. It makes you interesting. The federal government mounted an entire task force to catch yeah. you because you were so smart. I said, and they gave you six years for a crime that most of these guys get 18 months for. And yeah. I said, listen, I said, you need to lean in that. So he, he found out. There were multiple certificates you got, had to get classes, yeah. he did that. He took all, when, as soon as he got out, he did those things. He then got a job working for you. And I had told him this, like, yeah, you're not going to be able to go work for like IBM, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of these companies hire sub, uh, you know, sub companies. You could sure. probably work for one of them. That's what he did. He went and got a job working for a small company that was, that their services were, were, um, you know, it's highly right. sought after what he was doing. Right. Huh? I mean, people, it's highly sought after for oh, what he was doing. He I mean, no people pay big money for that. This kid's making like $150,000. Yeah. And he's only been doing it like four or five years. Like with it, that's cool. In the first year, he was making $100,000. Second year, it's a little over. He's now making $150,000 to $160,000. Constantly has headhunters calling him. Yeah. And he's a felon, and everybody knows. Everybody yeah. knows. And I think a lot of that too is, you know, First of all, you helped him out. You kind of that you helped him get focused on what he had that was his his uh, magic. He yeah, he was magic you know, one. I always tell like I get tons of guys that ask me questions. You know, got young young kids that you know. Yeah. I don't know why. Like to me, I bumbled my way through life, but but I they ask experience. Well, and I tend to give them. They're like, well, what would you say about this? I'm like, you know, I'm going to give you the same advice any thought like i'm not going to tell you yeah. anything amazing but then when i tell it to them i realize it's that a little different well i don't know if, you know that i don't think they they don't have anybody to tell them these things it's like, yeah i guess so maybe that could be it too it's, right. they're hearing it for the first time sure yeah. find something you love mm-hmm. that you're interested in that you're not going to mind doing the rest of your life and lean into that and, and into that. find a way that make that pay you and don't do it for the money because if just try and be the best at it because if you're the best at it and the money will come. Yeah. And I think another thing I was thinking while you were talking there, Matt, like what, another thing that I used in prison was, is, is to try to win the day. And I had a, my daughter had a calendar that she gave me every year that had like our family pictures in it and everything. And so I filled out that little box every night on the calendar. I was trying to find something that happened even in prison. Like what, what happened? I can say happened good today. Here's what happened there. What happened good. And one of the things I did to try to keep myself from falling down into a slippery slope was not fill out two bad boxes Then I win the day, you know, one day at a time, don't get too far ahead of yourself because like with you, you had, you know, a much bigger sentence than me, but I, for me, a five-year sentence, you know, looking at that, you know, five years out, that just seems overwhelming. It's, it's, you know, day to day and, and then don't fall down the trap day to day. Don't fall down the trap. So that's one of the things I used was, is that, Try to find something. And then if I did have a bad day, I wasn't trying to win all days. If I had a really bad day, I went all the way down. It was a really shitty day and I went all the way down with it. But I didn't want to go down two days with it because then I knew that that could turn into a week. That could turn into a month. That could turn into a year. And I became that guy that was in the fetal position over there. And that's what always scared me. So that was a strategy of mine was don't fill out two bad boxes. Don't do it because that, that gets slippery slope there in prison. And I always, always thought, I mean, cause you see them all around you. You see the good ones 
that are trying to make it work and you see the ones that have given up and you think, oh my God, I hope that doesn't ever happen to me because that can happen. Yeah. You get, get a bit of bad news and, and bad news in prison is really bad news in prison. Feels that much worse. So I, so when you did get out, you went to what, yeah. a halfway house? Yeah, God, I went to a terrible halfway house. You know, and the, th the thing about, what, not that there's, hey, there's a great halfway house. The one in the one in St. Louis is the oldest halfway house in the United States of America. Mm. And it is, as they all are, not in good areas. And this is in a horrible area on Cope Brilliant Boulevard in the ugliest, most crime-ridden street in St. Louis. I mean, the things that happen around that halfway house are only drugs and shootings and whatever else you can come up with. And then we're all there. I mean, before I got there, the guy, you know, he must have stitched on somebody and he came out of the, you know, that front glass door and they just mowed him down in a drive by. So you always thought about like when I'm leaving that front door, it was it was weird, though, because it was so locked down. We were like with 150 guys and they had this big glass area that you couldn't get out of. You know, it was all locked, locked down. And it was it was worse than prison that that and I had I spent eight weeks there. I have no idea why I had to spend that much time there because I had a place to go. My wife, you know, I had a job and I still, I still spent eight weeks there. And it was like the dirtiest and, and strangest and worst place I've ever spent. Well, now Warrington County Jail was the worst place I've ever spent. But this one, this one was dirtier that it was I was glad to get out of there. And I, it's certainly they, they're so bad, they get written up about uh, all the time here in St. Louis, and they got their, their contract taken away from them. And they were supposed to open up a new dismiss house, dismiss house, a new halfway house, and they somehow didn't get the contractors done. And so it reverted back. And so now they're, they're uh, year by year at the dismiss house, so they're still alive. It's still well, going on. So you you were there for eight weeks. Did you go home on hang, on a like ankle monitor or? Yeah, I did, and that was that was kind of unique because the the um, bef when I got there, they had just got a new contract uh, renewed, and that ankle monitors was part of the new contract, and so they never had ankle monitors ever, and so the month before they get these ankle monitors. So I get an ankle monitor stripped on me, tacked to my ankle. And um, I thought, because always what they had done, I don't know if this happened with you, Matt, but they made three phone calls a night uh, starting from nine o'clock until six o'clock in the morning. And you had to have a landline. And if you didn't answer it, then you had to come back to the halfway house. Well, they didn't stop doing that, even though they they strapped us on with the, uh, the ankle monitor. So I had the ankle monitor. And I had three of those contacts a night, which just was like, you, you wake up and like, holy shit. Okay. Okay. I answered because you, your thought is if I don't answer, they're going to send me back. Um, and then I had a defective ankle monitor because they were all these old ankle monitors. They didn't get new ones. And I had a defective ankle monitor that wouldn't hold a charge. And if it doesn't hold a charge, it, that also sends you back. So I kept telling my case manager, Hey, my ankle monitor. Oh no, you just need to charge it. And so I finally, you know, after a couple of days, they, they kept ringing that I was escaping and I said, no, it doesn't charge. And so they finally cut it off of me and put another one on. So it took a little anxiety off of the situation, but it's so hard to tell people like what kind of anxiety that is because here I am at work and, you know, I'm 
back into this new job and this damn ankle monitor is going and it's flashing red and it won't. And, and that means it's going down to the big panel down there that I'm escaping from my BOP world custody. It's just, it was crazy. But after that first week, I was fine. So what, so what was your, what was the job you got when you got out? Well, it's funny. Cause I, 